Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 15 in our series that explores the history of Main Man, the groundbreaking management rights company that redefined the rock and roll business model in the 70s and in so doing became synonymous with the decadence and indulgences that are now rock folklore. We had this fantastic idea of playing this gig at the Roundhouse where we supported Country Joe and the Fish as kind of comic book heroes. Main Man was formed by entrepreneur and empresario Tony DeFries, who worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Dana Gillespie, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Iggy Pop, Mott the Hoople and David Bowie. I think that throughout the 60s and most of the 70s I was driven by lust. As much as anything, it's a great creative force. In this episode, we're featuring another of the larger-than-life characters that was a regular visitor to Haddon Hall. We're delving into the Main Man archive to explore the importance and influence of one of the key characters in the early part of David Bowie's career, mime legend Lindsay Kemp. David first met Lindsay in 1967, when David's girlfriend at the time, who was the receptionist for his then-manager, convinced him to go and see one of Lindsay's performances because he was playing David's album as interval music. Previously uninterested in mime, David became infatuated and so began a long and very influential relationship with Lindsay that reshaped David's visual approach to music and performance. Here's Lindsay explaining how mime became popular in the UK in the 60s and how he first met David. Well, I think, you know, Marcel Marceau began coming to London in the 50s and then through the 60s. And I think he was a very big influence, you know. There were suddenly quite a few imitators. And then the Bricousse show, Stop the World, was a wonderful show, I thought, and and Newley was great in that. And mime started creeping almost into the mainstream. And I began about that time also, I mean, like about... 1958, I began appearing with a white face on the stage. I mean, like so many others, you know, copying Marcel Marceau, who I idolised and then later went on to study and work with. But all my life I've been, you know, very fascinated, you know, passionate about the the circus and particularly about the Italian Commedia dell'arte, the white-faced Pierrot's. And uh, and I've done many versions of Pierrot, I mean, from Schoenberg's Pierrot Lunaire, etc., you know, through to the, the musical Pierrot's and white-faced clowns like uh, Buster Keaton and the pale faces of uh, Stan Laurel. And it was those people, of course, that David was also, also very enthusiastic, very passionate about. I was performing a, a, a little show with my company, um, at the Little Theatre, which is just off St. Martin's Lane, a show called The Tinsel People. And David came to see that show. I had heard him, I had heard a record, a mutual friend had given me the DRAM record, and I used that. I fell in love with him. And uh, the track, When I Live My Dream, I played as preset music. 
And he was, first he was very flattered, loved the show, and came round backstage afterwards and uh, expressed a desire to be part of my world and to learn from me. So the very next day he came to my flat in Bateman Street in Soho and um, we laughed a lot, we played a lot. He brought his 12-string guitar along and he sang a lot. And we put together that very day a little show which was to be called Piero and Turquoise. And I love Jacques Brel. And, uh, and the first evening, our first date, after we'd been to the uh, Tibetan Society, where David took me to a meeting there. I mean, he was very involved in the free Tibet movement. But after that, we went to the Duchess Theatre to see a little show called Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. And, you know, we went night after night after night to see that show. It was very much influenced, you know, by that style and, and by the French uh, chanteur and so on. We played a lot of that music, you know, from me to the Piaf and Stan Laurel and, and Buster Keaton and Harry Langdon and so on. I mean, people that all my life have been a, a very great uh, influence uh, has, in fact, you know, been the, uh, the silent cinema. And also Piran Turquoise was very much, you know, set in that kind of setting. It was a kind of a, a, a circus musical backstage cabaret, much akin to the Blue Angel, which we looked at a lot in those, those early films. And the following day he began doing classes with me at the dance centre in Covent Garden. He was very, very keen to learn. He was very passionate about everything he did. He was fabulously responsive, but very stiff. I, I, I really taught him, um, you know, I increased his, his, his physical flexibility for a start, and then I helped him express himself through his body. I taught him the art of stillness, the art of walking, which most people find very difficult, the art of dancing and of twirling, and uh, I taught him uh, projection, and uh, I taught him the economy of gesture, economy of movement, and, uh, and mime. I taught him everything I knew, in fact, you know, in the time that, that we were together. David has a very immense talent, God knows, I mean, but he's a singer and he's not a mime. I taught him what I had learned from Marcel Marceau. I, you know, I taught him, you know, an amount of technique, but one is either a mime or not a mime. It's like a clown, you know, you're a clown or you're not a clown, or a singer or not a singer. David was a singer and a very good one and a very a fine musician, but not a mime. He struggled with it. God knows. Uh, he painted his face white, but, I mean, that, that's not enough. I mean, I, I, I think he abandoned it wisely after a while. After, I mean, I'd love to sing, but, you know, I can't because my, <laughs> I can't. I'm silent. And I helped him uh, express himself with, with movement and the mind training that I, I did give to him obviously helped his, uh, his, his stage performances immensely. My work had a very great Japanese influence, as particularly influenced by the No Theatre and by the Bunraku puppets and by the Kabuki. 
And I always taught my students, you know, what I know. I, I didn't know very much about it then, and I know quite a lot more about, about it now because I've been to Japan a lot and I've, I've worked there and danced there and, and studied with, uh, with Kabuki ma- masters. But at that time, it was pretty much my, um, my own version. And then, of course, he had Kansai, the Japanese designer, who, who, who did his costumes, and, and my own movement, very much uh, in, influenced by uh, Japan, and also, well, the Oriental Theatre in general, Katakali, and so on. And, of course, uh, what I realise now was very similar to Butoh, Bucho, I didn't know anything about in those days, but looking at old videos of that show now, I think, well, that's very Bucho and so on. And, of course, it was very influenced by the avant-garde theatre. He wasn't really into rock and roll at that time. I mean, I, I got a surprise several years later when Angela Bowie came up to Edinburgh with the, uh, the Ziggy Stardust album and uh, with a request from uh, David and Tony de Vries that I should go to London and stage that production. And David said on the telephone, look, when you hear it, you might get a surprise because it's, I, I've really changed quite a bit. This is quite rock and roll, you know, Lindsay. But, I mean, I was thrilled by the rock and roll element. Anyway, you know, I've always been a kind of a, a rock and roller, albeit a, a relatively silent one. That event that Angela invited Lindsay to work on was a piece of rock theatre that David had been planning for several months as part of his long-held desire to stage a musical. Inspired by the works of an avant-garde group called The Living Theatre, who incorporated scaffolding, raised platforms and screens into their performances, David wanted to do the same with a Ziggy show. So across two nights on August 19th and 20th in 1972 at London's Rainbow Theatre, David combined The Living Theatre concept with lighting he'd seen in the show Cabaret, to produce a rock spectacle to surpass anything ever staged up until that point. It was the ideal concept for Lindsay to utilise all his stage experience. So while David was busy planning and rehearsing in London, he arranged for Angela to visit Lindsay in Scotland and invite him to create some Ziggy-worthy effects for the show. Angela said, you'll have a free hand. And she said, have a listen to this and uh, let's hear your ideas if you can come down to London the day after tomorrow. And I had 24 hours in which to uh, listen to the music and visualise. And then I went down to London to meet Tony de Vries at a studio. And uh, I acted and danced and mimed out the entire show. Gum to Grove, I remember that was. And, uh, well, they were, they were delighted, so... Uh, uh, yeah, and a few days later, with some members of my company, we had been performing flowers in um, in Edinburgh, and with some of my troupe, we uh, got together, and with three days' rehearsals, we put on the show. I certainly, I mean, I did the lighting and the scenery and our costumes, in, anyway, and, and directed, but, but we, they were wonderful. They were very responsive was a lot of fun. They enjoyed it all very, very much. It was a very, very enjoyable time. I, I remember working all night. I mean, the night before the opening, David went off to bed about two in the morning, but we were still doing the lighting at 11 o'clock the following morning and so on, the day we opened. When he first walked onto the stage singing Lady Stardust, I mean, that was Bowie, and it was Bowie at his most marvellous because his, his medium, I mean, you know, is his music and his voice. 
what was was such a joy for me was to see how he projected himself on the stage. That was extraordinary. I mean, that very first entrance was ex extraordinary. I mean, it was choreographed from beginning to end. I mean, from, from David's first solo entrance coming from far upstage through clouds of dry ice in, in, in that wonderful Kensai red costume. And the response, of course, you know, it was incredible. I mean, it was incredible. We, the dancers, were perched on different levels above the stage on scaffolding. I was the highest, as usual. Um, petrified up there for a very long time. Not only was David did Lady Stardust, but, uh, and I think we all wore Lady Stardust masks, look-alike masks. But before that, there was the Beethoven Clockwork Orange theme, which I wasn't expecting. So that was David's idea, and that came in as a, as a big surprise. At one point, a screen came down, and uh, it was out of the suffragette city, maybe. And uh, we projected a film of Kenneth Anger. And there were other projections. I, I think there was uh, Jean Angelou uh, we projected, and Magritte paintings and so on and so forth. I mean, I don't think that David needed all the trappings of, of, the, of the Rainbow concert. You know, I, I don't really think he needed us. You know, he didn't really need me as Queen Bitch wearing one of my old frocks. And uh, and I I also did Starman Starman da 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 and I came down a, a, a I think a hundred foot ladder from the flies of that vast rainbow theatre, but I think it was decided that you know we weren't really essential to the show, and I always encouraged David anyway through my teaching to keep it simple and to be economical. For me, the best number in the show was when David just sat on a stool and sang Jacques Brel's My Death in a solar spotlight. I was d delighted by the success. I'd never experienced anything like that. I'd never, you know, performed in front of crowds like that before. And, of course, I'd, I'd, I'd shared a stage with David before, but uh, the last time had been at the intimate theatre Palmer's Green. <laughs> the production was very different then, and so was the audience. I think there were about half a dozen people in the audience. That's when David and I, with Jack Burkett, were doing uh, a, a stage version of Pierrot in Turquoise, which later became a video version, which we did for Scottish television, called The Looking Glass Murders. Well, that was about two years after the... Uh, original production of Piero and Turquoise, he had changed quite a bit. I mean, we were pretty much the same, but I remember being a bit surprised when uh, he didn't uh, accept my invitation to come across the street to the Greasy Spoon for a cup of tea <laughs> during our rehearsal break. He said, oh, no, we'll, we'll have something sent over. I thought, sent over? How grand. My <laughs> My dear. And then he became a bit more, you know, distant over the years. I'm very pleased that, of course, my work, you know, through David reached a very wide audience indeed. And, of course, my own audience has increased enormously as a result. You know, suddenly the seats of the theatre where I was playing, you know, were filling up with all the David Bowie lookalikes. You know, everyone had their hair dyed red and combed in that style.
I think it's lasted because, well, of David's persona, but also the music, because we know, sadly, that so much of the, the liberated 60s has been forgotten, you know, much of its influence has faded. But David has managed to carry, I think, really through his music and his songs. It comes from deep, deep inside. I mean, his desires to be certain personalities. I think everything he is, he's the chameleon, everything that, that he is, I mean, you know, aspects of his personality and his desire to be an actor and his desire to be... Unfortunately, his desire to be a clown and a mime, you know, <laughs> it was a disaster. But, I mean, his personality is kind of very chameleon. Lindsay Kemp talking about his work with David, particularly the now legendary Rainbow Theatre concerts from 1972 that Lindsay choreographed and performed in. Those hugely ambitious shows were very expensive to stage, so the original plans to tour the show were shelved. There are some great photographs, fascinating articles, telexes, letters and production notes from the Rainbow Concerts in the Main Man Archive, part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia, a lot of it never seen before, that we are adding to the Main Man Label website each week. A really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.